the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You, um, if you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on uh, TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a religious murder mystery. Is there such a thing as that? Um, and I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, to mo- too much detail uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest, who is, in fact, a former member of the Mormon Church. She has written a number of best-selling books. In fact, she has more than 30 bestsellers to her credit. She also has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Joins us now to discuss a, a book that is now retitled and re-released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And we're pleased to have join us once again Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first a, a bit sort of from your, your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I, I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans, like a, a lot of Westerners, uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of Mormonism, um, all of the, the primary protagonists in the, the story uh, are, are Mormon or, or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon church. Why do you think it's attracting so much attention? Well, Under the Banner of Heaven was based on a best-selling book by John Krakauer, and he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon Church, some, I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, um, had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan. And she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things. And they ended up murdering her. And this is, I mean, this is a, a documented case uh, that actually happened. And Krakauer's book detailed that. But when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in it a couple of characters that weren't from real life but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with, with the listeners and the watchers of this, this uh, Hulu series was that they saw what happens 
to a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon, when he begins to see that his past, his um, all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality and fact. In mm-hmm. other words, um, most of the history of the Mormon Church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up, but it's actually quite a bloody uh, background, or, or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least, uh, certainly the last one hundred plus something years, and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient. Then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over, and and uh, the the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Uh, beyond obviously some aspects, and I think you know for for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. There's sort of the more traditional. LDS, Utah, Mother Church brand of Mormonism, and then we have a lot of offshoots. I'm thinking of, for example, the the Warren Jeffs um, uh, offshoot that that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very, very closed type of society where, on average, and correct me at any point, Dr. Scott, if I'm incorrect here, most LDS church Mormons, well, perhaps a lot of their social life might be amongst other Mormons and within their own family, they, they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons, um, and in fact, oftentimes are, are very, very active in the community around them. Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a, a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University, um, at that time, Brigham Young University was was for members of the main group that you just mentioned, and, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamist compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Uh, young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So this wasn't something really openly talked about, but you know, I knew that uh, once you started talking to people about their background and they weren't usually weren't very open about it, but you could finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there, they were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream Mormon church. Hmm. Groups. Now, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and an age, when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows. And yet, I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views the or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion, in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the the people of the church tend to be very involved in in civic life and, and community life and, uh, you know, well-known for certainly clean living. You know, if you if you say, well, my neighbor, you know how he is. He doesn't smoke, drink, or go with girls that do. <laughs> They'll probably say, oh, yeah, he's a Mormon. You know, there's that there's that sense of, of, of a high level of discipline and healthy, clean living lifestyle. And yet, 
below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming, everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism. And again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be. You know, there's an inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle. And, of course, if you believe, as I did, that when I got married that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably bear because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies, and so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice polygamy me on earth, but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess, and my husband's other wives were goddesses, and he was a god, and we would be populating planets. Well, you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity, coupled with the fact that you really do want to put the best foot face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dressed nice, and you uh, you want to be the, the hostess with the mostess and cook and clean and, you know, participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. And I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently, not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to to um, model future godhood and it's it's quite a burden to, to carry yeah, it would seem to me i mean you're, you're describing a model that is very in other terms very works based and as we know from a biblical perspective, a, a works-based faith uh, never never turns out well. Uh, you know, our, our, our works mm-hmm. are a result of our, uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation and not the other way around. And so I would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard. And then also finding yourself in a religion that is... Um, pretty close-minded, and by that I mean, and I even say it on this program, hey, if I say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey, don't take my word for it. Go and check it out. Go talk to your pastor. Dive into the Word and see if it doesn't agree, and if the Word doesn't agree and proves me wrong, then please call me and tell me I'm an idiot and a liar. That kind of questioning or sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, doubting Thomas trying of one's own faith, that's not encouraged within Mormonism at all, is it? Well, not only that, Craig, what you're aiming at and what I'm aiming at is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation or in, in Mormon terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth but exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that you're absolutely right and so you and i both want um, uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great you know this uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best 
that there's there many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their their religious faith puts on them and um and you mentioned that they're being exclusive i don't think you use that word um from the point of view of a Mormon, I was very proud of that. I, I this uh, this close knit group was something I was proud of. And to be honest with you, Craig, I've been a member of the same congregation for fifty years now. Once I left Mormonism, same Christian con- congregation of people, and I love that we stick together too. So, you know, what we see as a disadvantage in, in others, we need to just make sure as, if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on. A group that we have a um, that we, when it shines back on us, we're not doing the same thing. Um, that's why I think people often ask, "Is Mormonism a cult?" And um, I just wanted to ask you, Craig, what, what do you think about that? Well, you know, as as I understand a cult, and there, there's a couple of degrees to which I, I would define it. First and foremost, when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary rudimentary definition of what salvation is, uh, I I would suggest. Yes, because I do not see within Mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with mm-hmm. God restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet I understand mm-hmm. that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based, which then I think would would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult, meaning that it does not singularly turn on Christ's work on the cross. And then when you add things like, yeah, the, the, the sense of being, being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing, provided that, you know, it, it doesn't become an echo chamber. And what I love about mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged, I think that it, that, it, mm-hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do. Hath God said, let's check out and see what the Word has to say. Asking questions seems to be something that, at least from my understanding, is not always encouraged within the Mormon Church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to any of the twelve elders and said, "Okay, about these uh, about these plates of Moroni," um, and uh, so they came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eyewitness accounts that we see and the harmony of the Gospels and throughout mm-hmm. Scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's Word is, in fact, verifiable by extra-biblical sources. And that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a a cult, quote-unquote, like a Jonestown, Jim Jones-style cult, I would still have to say, and I would would even say this to a a, a Mormon friend, that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult. You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a a cult, and one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god. We've already talked about, and you brought up very aptly, the different view of salvation, a works-based salvation. When you mentioned the uh, the golden plates, 
what did the Book of Mormon intend to do? It intended to make up for the lacks in the Bible. So the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. And the only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable, we did this, you and I not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father in, um, in Mormon theology, was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became a God. Yeah. So the fourth characteristic of a cult, we, we actually just in talking about it, it just been talking about what we know about Mormonism, we've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult. And, you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, certainly the notion of wanting to to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, hath God said? And and the notion of man wanting to take on uh, God-like characteristics. I have to tell you, uh, as a believer of many years now, I find even the notion exhausting. I would have no God says, I am the only Lord thy God and you will have no other gods before me and I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive uh, let alone being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God and, and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having I mean, I, I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of God, but I am not God and when we start to do that, we find ourselves quite frankly, taking on the characteristics of another very prominent character in Scripture, and that is Satan himself, who wished to be God. And therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we, we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here just right over here in Utah. Boy, you got to look at that and say there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and, and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what Mormon teaches, how it differs from traditional main Line fundamental five pillars of the faith style of Christianity, and then ultimately, and perhaps most importantly, how we can reach our Mormon friends for Christ. We take a time out, we'll come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I'm getting the sense that we should have booked an hour with our guest uh, in this segment of the program because there's so much to unpack here. But that'll maybe give you a good reason to go out and uh, order a copy of her newly released and retitled book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code, where she draws from her own life experiences and offers insights to readers in terms of not just having a better understanding of some of the history of Mormonism, what it teaches, how it differs from mainline evangelical Christianity, but then, and of course, most importantly, Uh, how we're able to share our faith and encouragement with 
our Mormon friends. And and toward that end, let, let's talk about that. We've kind of talked about some of the the challenges that that Mormons face in terms of you know the the the, the sort of the requirement of of lifestyle and good works for um, salvation. And and I would suspect then to some degree, uh, Mormons at some point in their their life experience must get a little bit tired and feel tremendously unfulfilled that they're working so hard and granted they've got something to look forward to but you know one of the joys uh, dr scott for me is that yes i've got heaven to look forward to but i also get lots of benefits down here and the relationship with god and the satisfaction of being able to, to have that communion with him is is absolutely uh, without without equal and and yet i would imagine for a mormon they don't share that experience and i wonder if that's a is that potentially a starting point when you wish to share your faith with the Mormon. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because when people ask me when Mormon missionaries come to their door, what should they do? You know, what should they know? Is there a magic bullet scripture you can quote to them and they'll go away scratching their heads and, you know, starting to wonder? And it's really much simpler than that, Craig. I tell people that when someone comes to your door and tells you that they uh, have the Mormon gospel, um, I suggest that you not invite them in unless you're really, really prepared. And I believe your home is a sacred place not to bring someone an error into. But here's what I tell people to do. You can open the door and say, you know... Uh, I appreciate your coming, but you know what? I am so satisfied in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have such a happy relationship with my uh, church family, and even though I have circumstances in my life that are hard, I have eternal joy and eternal hope, and I'm content with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you why that would be so effective. When I was a Mormon, I believed that Christians were secretly unhappy and they needed Mormonism be happy and that they were all and of course that was always solidified when people slammed the doors in the faces of Mormon missionaries you know here are these sour faced people that you know say I don't want to hear you and they shut the door if I think if I had when I was Mormon heard Christians saying my life with with the Lord Jesus Christ is so satisfying that I don't need what you're offering me I tell you what these 18, 19-year-old boys that are homesick, they're away from their homes, they're stuck with each other, you know, day and night, literally. If they heard that from, let's say, every other door that they knocked on in a neighborhood of a Christian giving them a big smile and saying, you know what? I, don't, I just don't need that. I, I have so much joy in, in my life, so much satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not anything you could give me that I don't already have. Those young men would go back and start thinking, what do they know that we don't know? Mm. Let me ask you this. From, from a Mormon perspective, um, when, when I think of God, certainly I, I acknowledge and recognize that he is holy and righteous and that uh, he's a jealous God. 
he wants no other gods before him, that he expects me to live up to a certain standard. The same token, that same God recognizes that in my fallen sin nature, we've proven to be wholly incapable of that, and therefore the reason why he sent his son to pay the price on my behalf. But I, I don't see God as someone that is standing in heaven with a bat ready to bash me over the head at the first wrong move. Rather, I see a God that, yes, is holy and righteous, but is also loving, long-suffering, tender, compassionate, caring, always present, um, always responding, even though the answer sometimes to prayer may be no, but yet God is, is engaging and is there. Is that kind of perspective shared by Mormons, or is he the, the big bo- boogeyman up in the sky ready to bop you over the head? Honestly, I never had that impression, um, Craig. In fact, kind of to the opposite, since I believed that God the Father was a former man who had lived on another planet, and that his wife, or wives, Heavenly Mother, had gone through the same kind of process I had gone through in an earthly life, I believed that they would be more sympathetic my struggles because they had been through them themselves. Mm. And of course that completely hijacks and shanghai's the role of Jesus Christ of as someone who came to earth to share in our in our, in our uh, sufferings. And, you know, he suffered in all points just as we are. And if, if you don't mind me inserting this right now, because the, those four characteristics I told you uh, about a cult are so significant in evaluating any group like Mormonism. I would love to bless your listeners with a free ebook on the characteristics of a cult. All they have to do is go to latane.com forward slash cults and I'll send them a free ebook that gives the characteristics of, of a cult. You can take those and look at any group around you to see if they, uh, if they follow these four characteristics. And to come back to what you're saying, this view of a formerly human God, the Father, diminishes him. See, the comfort I have now, Craig, in the true and living God of, of the uh, of the uh, of the Bible is that He doesn't ever change. Mormons believe God is eternally progressing; that, that He's going to be wiser tomorrow than He was today. And the problem with that, of course, is that. He's not as wise as he uh, he wasn't as wise yesterday as he is today. Mm. That once you realize that, it, it makes him a lesser god because he's just one of us. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so delighted that the God I serve is all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, and is all-knowing. And I don't have to worry about God learning something new tomorrow. He knows it all, and I can rely upon that in my own life. And, you know, at the end, and I think this is a good point to conclude our conversation on, Dr. Scott, Mormonism, like like many of the cults, if you, if you scrutinize it close enough, you begin to realize that their attributes, that are Christianity-like, that are Bible-ish, but in the end are, in fact, a cheap imitation of the real deal. Now, how can you gain a better understanding in knowing the difference? Well, uh, Dr. Scott, very gracious in offering a free ebook called What is a Cult? And all you need to do to get your own copy is to go to 
latane.com forward slash cults. And I'll spell that for you. It's L-A-T-A-Y-N-E, latane.com forward slash cults. And you can get your own free copy of the ebook What is a Cult? Dr. Scott, we're going to have to have you back on when we've got more time to spend together because there's so much on this subject matter that I believe is worthwhile talking about and so many of the lessons that are certainly specific to Mormonism, but in the broader sense can be applied across the board for any of us, no matter who you might run into as you share your faith with others, uh, gaining a better understanding of, um, of who Christ is, of course, and your own relationship with God is the first key to understanding more about the cults and sharing your faith. Information again on the web at Latane, L-A-T-A-Y-N-E dot com. And for your free ebook called What is a Cult? Simply go to Latane.com forward slash cults. Dr. Latane Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The book, Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Began as, well, perhaps any Memorial Day weekend does for many of us. Plans to get away, enjoy three days off, spend some time maybe doing a bit of traveling, sightseeing, or just hang out with the family. That was certainly the plan in place for Brian Brown and his family as they set out Memorial Day weekend on a Saturday just a year ago to fly to Idaho to go visit a daughter. That weekend, though, turned out to be anything other than a happy one. Though when everything was said and done, it certainly was demonstrative of God's keeping and saving power. Brian joins us tonight to share his story detailed inside the pages of a new book called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. And Brian, great to have you on the program. Good evening, Craig. Thanks for having me. Well, as we mentioned, this was Memorial Day of just a year ago in 2012. And uh, that Saturday, you had plans to uh, get into your uh, your private plane. I understand you're, you're a private uh, pilot. You've got a little Cessna 172. And I, I guess in some respects, that weekend might not have been different from any other when you hopped into the airplane to go take a, a quick trip. You were planning to head over to, to Idaho to go visit your daughter, Tabitha. That's right. Yeah, it was a very routine trip, just like you had mentioned, uh, just like a lot of people make every day. And uh, we just had an unexpected turn of events, that's for sure. Now, you're an experienced pilot. You've been flying for a lot of years. You've owned this particular airplane for a lot of years. While it's an older plane, it's it's a plane that you describe inside the pages of Rescued as one that's been very well maintained and has a, a history of reliability. And certainly, if there's any uh, pilots in the audience, they, they might know some of the history and reliability of the, the Cessna 172. You also come at this with a unique background in that, uh, professionally, you're, you're a rescuer. You work for the, the fire department up in the Galt area, which I think is a, probably close to put it in, in perspective for our listeners here in this part of California. You're up near Roseville, right? Uh, it's a little uh, south of Sacramento, actually. South of Sacramento, okay. Yeah. And so uh, you work as a firefighter. You've been on search and rescue teams. You, you do this professionally and have for, for many years. So some might think that this day would not only be a routine day in a reliable airplane, that you had plenty of experience flying, but you're a guy that, gee, if you're going to be up in an airplane somewhere, I'd like to have you along with me. It's, good, <laughs> it's You feel good to have an experienced uh, firefighter and rescue person with you. Yeah, it, it is a good combination, uh, especially after all of this. I could definitely vouch for that. <laughs> this weekend, as I'm sure listeners have already figured out, though, didn't quite end the way you and your wife and daughter Heather had planned. No, um, certainly not at all. We um, 
We had started our trip, and the the weather was absolutely crystal clear. It was a beautiful trip, uh, and we were actually only about an hour away from our destination, and the weather had had turned very sour uh, to the point where I couldn't see through the windshield. It was raining so hard, um, I couldn't see through the windshield. And it's you know not too uncommon to fly in some rain, um, but again, that's that's just out of the question to continue. And I had made an abrupt turn to get out of the out of the weather and then actually put the plane down in a small remote strip in Rome, Oregon. Your, your, your daughter from some of the turbulence, I think uh, you account in the book, had, uh, well, let's say, when, you're, when your tummy is bothering you on a road trip, you can find the nearest rest stop. It's kind of hard to do, though, when you're in an airplane, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, she, she got a little sick. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a really rough flight for her. And not being a real fan of flying to begin with, that certainly didn't um, didn't help any of the matters. That's for sure. Now this is late May. This is this is good weather. I mean, we're yeah. into you know kind of the unofficial launch of summer, and it's it's uh, picnics and barbecues. You set out that morning in in route to uh, as we say to Mountain Home, Idaho, to go visit your daughter Tabitha. Mm-hmm. There was no anticipation that you would find inclement weather along the way, was there? Um, no, not not to the degree that we did. I, we knew that there was some weather out there because I did do some pre-planning and I did see some weather out there, but it was also all moving to the east, the same direction we were. Mm. And in, in fact, what some of my hopes were was that the weather would actually pull us faster across, you know, heading eastbound because we'd be kind of right behind that front. Have the weather beat you, in other words, yeah. Yeah, it, it would have it just really kind of slingshotted us right into where we needed to to be and but in fact what had happened was all that weather had stalled right in front of us now you started out what time of day we started out first thing in the morning at about seven thirty. all right so with what i think is probably a round of what four hour plane flight mm-hmm. uh, you should have comfortably been there you know maybe maybe in time for a fashionably late lunch yeah that uh, and that was the plans of our oldest daughter um, as a matter of fact, we had um, some loose plans of, of stopping into Boise for lunch at one of the, her favorite restaurants. And as the day progressed, obviously, all of our casual lunch uh, plans had changed as well. Yeah, and in fact, almost from the get-go, uh, yeah. there were a couple of things that transpired that, that maybe what? Is it fair to say, in, in retrospect, might have told you that this was not going to be a very good day? Um. No, not totally. Um, I mean, if you're you're referring to like the the battery, we had had a battery issue with the aircraft, and that's actually really common as well, especially during that time of the year, uh, because we weren't in the flying season. We were just getting ready to to become into the the best flying season. And so I hadn't flown that much. And it's like, you know, car collectors in the audience that know that you got the baby uh, holed up in the garage yep. for uh, good portions of the, the week or the year, and you take it out once in a while. And if you don't get a chance to turn over the engine with some degree of regularity, uh, engines get stiff and batteries go weak. Yeah, and that's that's exactly where we were. Um, you know, so we had that, that did delay us that day. I charged the battery first thing in the morning uh, because the plane just didn't have the power to actually uh, turn the engine over. Um, but once we had charged it, things were just fine. Um, and then we charged it again when we had stopped for lunch in um, Susanville, which is just right on the California-Oregon or Nevada border. So when did you finally then put out of the, the airport initially? Uh, we pulled out of uh, Lodi right around 8.20, I believe. Okay, so not too terribly delayed. No. 
but enough so that things then kind of began to uh, snowball, pardon the pun. Yeah. Um, by the time you were kind of into the forced landing with your daughter um, uh, responding to the turbulence in a uh, an unpleasant fashion, uh, you sat down in an extremely rural area, didn't you? Yeah, you know, and I, I explained it as uh, Rome State, Oregon is, is where the... Um airstrip was and it truly was exactly that it was an airstrip uh made of gravel it was out in the middle of the field literally in the middle of nowhere no buildings um nothing for better than 50 miles around us and um i think the only thing we probably would have seen was the coyotes so there's no control tower there there's no fuel or food services there's literally nothing literally nothing there was a sign that described it as rome state airport and a place to actually tie the aircraft down, you know, to chain it down in case of, you know, bad weather and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that that literally was it. And uh, This is almost like a rest stop, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for want of better uh, comparison for folks uh, in the audience that don't fly. But this is a rest, rest stop along the way that has absolutely zero services whatsoever. Not even a bathroom. Not even a bathroom. And you're putting down on gravel, which means that, you know, if you don't hit it right, uh, you can do some damage to the plane, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, that was a major concern uh, when I flew over it. I, I looked at it and I told my wife and daughter, it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. But it was the only thing close and safe to put the plane down as quickly as I could. You put it down, she got out, you cleaned things up, and then it became a waiting game for a while. Why? Yeah, well, the weather truly was too bad to continue at that point. And I had, we had had all the reservations of staying and actually sleeping in the aircraft right there in the middle of the field. Uh, because it, the weather just didn't look like it was going to turn in our favor. And we'd even called our oldest daughter, Tabitha, um, and told her, hey, we're, we're probably not going to be able to make it today. And she'd even made, you know, the offer of, of driving out to get us. And for her, it would have been a six-hour drive even at that point for her to come and get us where it was only about a 50-minute flight for us to, you know, direct line over the mountains and right to Mountain Home. Uh, so we, we had actually reserved the thought of, of spending the night there and, and truly were planning to do that. And then what happened was the weather, we had a huge change in the weather again, where it looked really clear and really good. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, we've got 50 minutes. I can make this flight. And when we proceeded on, the, the flight was going really well up until we got over the Owyhee Mountains. And, and, you know, maybe the big lesson here is that as fast as the weather can clear, <laughs> it can also get ugly again, can't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's pick up that side of the story and the other side of the time out here, because it, it, it leaves us now, this is like a good cliffhanger, uh, and you're going to have to wait to answer the doorbell before you can turn to the next page and find out what happened, um, as literally now, we're kind of in the middle of this. So the decision is made, the weather has cleared, it's only 50 minutes. What possibly could go wrong in 50 minutes? Oh, yes, the question of the ages. We'll get back to more of our visit today with Brian Brown, the book Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. I'm Craig Roberts. We'll get back back to more right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
is every pilot's worst nightmare, a sudden change in the weather. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Brian Brown. He has written a new book detailing his family's experiences of Memorial Day weekend of 2012. His book is called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. So we pick things up. Brian, you decide there's a break in the weather. You only have 50-minute flight to be able to meet up with your daughter, Tabitha, there in Mountain Home, Idaho. So you're going to go ahead and, uh, and chance it. Do you, are you trained or, or uh, licensed to fly with instruments? I have some real brief training, but not licensed for it, no. Okay. So uh, visual for you is really important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it really is what kind of spelled out what happened to us um, because like I said, we, we took off from Rome, and things were going great. Uh, we were really right on schedule. Everything was fine. But then when we got over the Owyhee Mountains in Idaho, uh, one, the, the air started getting very turbulent, and then we literally had uh, clouds forming right in front of us. And as, as I was watching them form on one side, I started veering off to the other direction, saw them form to that, to that new direction I was headed, and I thought, wow, we need to turn back again. And as soon as I had looked to turn back, we were already completely closed in. Mm. And so, you know, in order to keep that visual like you were talking about, I was just underneath the cloud line, but just above the mountain ridge line. So it was in a very narrow margin of, of space, you know, to be able to um, fly safely, really. And um, what happened is after I went over that last ridge line right before we crashed, I basically hit a, a mountain wave or an air current that ripped the airflow right out from underneath the wings. Now, help us understand, for, for folks that don't, don't know quite all of the uh, the mechanics of this, you, you suddenly begin losing lift, don't you? Yeah, it's very quick. And, uh, I mean, it's like an undertow in the ocean. You know, you can feel it as a swimmer. And to a certain degree, I can feel it as a pilot under the controls, but where I really saw it was on my airspeed indicator. The, the yoke, does it start to fight you as you're... It, it gets a little mushy, yeah. yeah. And um, so... You know, I, like I said, though, I saw it on the airspeed indicator. We were traveling at about 110 miles an hour, and it dropped to 40 in the snap of a finger. Ooh, that's like slamming the brakes on pretty quick when you're on the freeway. Yeah. The problem is, on a freeway, you've always got the option of veering off to the left or right and, and hopefully avoiding a crash. Kind of hard to do that when you're how many feet up in the air? We were only about 900 feet above the ground level. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. And that's where... Um, when I saw that, I actually absolutely knew we were in trouble, and I had told my wife and daughter, I'm sorry, I don't think we're going to make it. I love you. And I had pitched the nose of the aircraft down into the canyon to try and get the airspeed back so the plane would con- continue to fly. Did it work? It did. Um, right before we um, got to the bottom, I was able to feel some control back in the plane, and I pulled the nose of the plane up as abruptly as I could. Uh, we hit two trees with the wingtips. And uh, then smacked belly first into the next mountainside in front of us. Mm. Your wife bought that airplane for you, didn't she? She did. It was a it was a gift of love. And um, she had to have been having second thoughts at this point, though, as to oh. the wisdom of that decision. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if she did or not. You know, she. Um, we we can talk about that too a little bit later. But I I do know. You know, they both Heather and uh, and Jan have the utmost of confidence in my flying. Um, they they did in fact they said I flew that aircraft all the way down to the ground as far as I could, and um, it as as whatever comfort that, that that can offer it it did offer some. Well, I guess at the end of the day, I mean there there's the pilot who flies a plane and crashes it. 
and survives, and the one who flies the plane crashes it and doesn't. And I think the guy that managed to fly it, crash it, and yet have all three of you walk away from that crash, so to speak, uh, has got to say something to your uh, your pilot abilities. Yeah, and that that is where the you know the FAA and the NTSB. When I talked to them, that's that is exactly what they said because I was fighting grief for a lot of this. I was the one behind the controls. I was the one that made all those decisions. Yeah. And um, I was really beating myself up pretty good over it. And, um, you know, they just they just walked me through the whole process and and actually were, were, were very forgiving. They said those exact words, you know, look, you flew that plane and you, you walked away from it along with, along with all your passengers. There's one other element, though, yeah. that we've kind of held back on for the moment. Um, and I want to have you dive into that when we come back after a timeout. But the other element here, um, while it is true that you were flying that airplane and making those decisions, um, you weren't alone in that, weren't you? There, there was someone else in control, too, wasn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let, let's let's find out who that was when we come back after a timeout. And, and the listeners are now wondering, well, gee, is wife may be sitting in the co-pilot seat there beside him. Maybe she's got control of the yoke as well and is kind of making, you know, wives are good at telling husbands how to drive better. And when it comes to directions, by the way, they're usually right. Uh, but what of that other control? We'll talk about that. His, our story with Brian Brown called Rescued continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 